everybody, and welcome to the AMT Tech Trends Podcast. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... And I'm Stephen Lamarca, the Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Yeah, awesome. Uh, today's episode is uh, sponsored by the MT360 Conference. It's a great uh, conference talking about the transformative technologies get into, getting into manufacturing. Uh, pulled a couple of speakers, so we got Matt from 3DO, Yasmin from Drive Capital, Rob from NVIDIA. Uh, Doug from Hackrod. I'm on a first name basis with all these people, by the wow. way, Steve. Hackrod, <laughs> NVIDIA, and 3DEO? 3DEO okay. and Drive Capital. Yep. Some great companies are going to be talking about uh, new technologies, use cases, and partnerships. Trying to implement new technologies, partnerships, and driving that through uh, different uh, means is uh, important. So this will be at the Santa Clara Convention Center May, uh, May 12th through the 14th. Go to MT360 Conference to see the speakers and technology in the factory. Also, I want to mention, go to MT360 Conference slash blog uh, to check out uh, a bunch of white papers that we have. We published three white papers, one covering uh, cognitive automation, augmented reality, and new business models for manufacturing. So some really good content on there. Plus, our transcripts and podcasts are also posted in the blog also. So wow. Not just SoundCloud and Spotify and iTunes and we're everywhere, man. Or Apple Music, excuse me. iTunes, uh, RIP. Is I, oh, that's right. It's um, dead, isn't it? Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> whatever your favorite latest fad uh, uh, listening choice is, it's there. Sit on title. Ooh, that's a good question. What is that? <laughs> that, that that's the that's, hi, that's the hi-fi where, where where people can hear our voices in hi-fi. Oh. Just in case this isn't enough for you, I'll research that later. <laughs> I doubt we're on title. Uh, before we get into the. Uh, 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 test bed and the articles I mentioned. Uh, we talk about technology. I had a I had a death in the family over the week, past couple of weeks. Oh geez, what happened? I lost one of my data servers at home. An entire so, server. An entire. So I got a small network. So I've been okay. storing pictures, uh, video. I do you know s- small photography type stuff, just personal stuff. Uh, I got a 4K camera now, so I do a lot of video editing, just again personal stuff. So instead of storing everything locally on a PC, I've got a NAS, a network attached storage. So it's a little server that's in the basement that I store all my files in. Um, I have an HP that I've had since actually I had to look this up uh, for about 20 since 2009. Dude, that is an old <laughs> computer. No wonder it died. <laughs> so I've had this thing for 2009. Uh, I don't. I've had one drive fail on it. Uh, I replaced that drive, and that's the nice thing about the, it's a uh, this the why I went with the HP is that at the time it was pretty revolutionary because the user interface for setting it up is very very easy. It had yeah. a Windows Server uh, install, but it was set up that you could tell um, what kind of RAID that you want. It would figure out or what kind of redundancy that you want. It would figure out the RAID pattern that you uh, that it needed. So you didn't have to specify RAID one zero five whatever. You said right. I would like one drive of backup, and it would figure out how to do it by itself. Um, and then setting up a drive was very simple user interface. So at the time, it was super cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, RAID systems, man. I remember drooling over like gaming PCs that with had a RAID. RAID. I didn't even know what it meant, man. But, <laughs> Nobody does. Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, a, a 2009 computer. 2009 computer. We think that's old, but I'm sure there's some you know uh, factory floor managers, like some shop <laughs> managers, that are thinking. Yep. 2009 old, we're still running Windows NT on our machine tools. I bet you, you know, you wouldn't have had a death in your server if uh, if you hot glued your USB ports. <laughs> that would have fixed half my problems. So the drive failed, or um, the, the, the drive didn't fail. The issue was uh, the only way it could access it is through the network card 
I think the network card completely failed. I can't access it through USB or any other physical means. Okay. So it's completely toast. Uh, but <clears throat> that we've been talking about, I actually posted something a couple of days ago on LinkedIn about uh, backing up your data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a huge issue that this drive d- failed. I had 20 years worth of pictures there yeah. that I've moved back and forth. And it was, it's been, in, um, I've stored those over to, over the years. Uh, one, I have everything uh, backed up to my own server online. Okay. I have a uh, w- website that I store everything on. That's so, so it's one backup. The cloud. The cloud, the magical cloud. The cloud. Also, the pictures are published to Google Photos. So if I want to look at them, I have a backup there also. I mean, Google Photos is really great with that, too. It's solid. I did have to upgrade because I have too much space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, the only thing that I did lost was like my resume, some old files that I really didn't care about that I didn't back up. So anything that I didn't back up, was it's completely gone, which in retrospect, I'm like, either I have physical copies, like all my house documents, stuff like that, yeah. that's in, in a drawer somewhere. I should put those in a safe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I lost a bunch of that, and then all the photos and stuff like that, I was backed up. So it was interesting. Uh, dilemma. Dilemma I faced as a home network engineer. <laughs> so it was interesting. But <clears throat> I was also carried over to my trip to SeaWorld. I went to San Diego a couple weeks ago with okay. my brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I had I a kid that. over the new year. Uh, so I took the family. My parents dragged them along. <laughs> uh, I regret every decision that involved getting there. Uh, so I'm in SeaWorld, hanging out with the family, mm-hmm. and I reach in my backpack and I bust out my camcorder. I'm immediately doing something cool and like, let's videotape this. I look around, look to my left, look to my right. It's a 4K camera. It's a little hand, handheld right, guy, right? Right, right. It'll pop out. It's the, the latest technology. A big one-inch sensor because it's going to do great in low light. I'm the only one. The entire park. I've walked around the entire park the whole day. Everybody's, from like 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. when you had to go for dinner. Everybody's got like the iPhones with like the four cameras on the front of it. I was the only one with a camcorder. <laughs> I was looking around. I was like, man, should, is it time to let this thing go? Is Are we at the stage where... I am no longer relevant because I'm buying a camcorder. And it did have my big, giant digital SLR also. Yeah, It's bigger now because it has a, an expansion slot for vertical grip and it's got uh, uh, dual batteries. So I whip that every once in a while to take some pictures of Amelia getting face painted and stuff. Right. Pictures are great. Pictures are amazing. I'm doing some home editing to touch them up, get some better color. And even with the, uh, the camcorder, shooting 4K at 60 frames per second. Mm-hmm. Uh, got some great color, 100 megabits per second. It, Great quality, but I'm the only one with this kind yeah. of equipment there. <laughs> well, form factors change, man. Form has changed. Like you know, I, I still laugh at people who take like care, you know, keep an iPad on them right. and take pictures, like family photos yeah. with an yeah. iPad. At like graduation, like, all right, everybody, <laughs> everybody, line up. Let me hold this lunch tray up. So uh, <laughs> they always have the flat thing around there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. like you know, so so I was just in San Francisco with. Um, with Jules, Adam, and their film crew, uh-huh. we went to Autodesk, the Autodesk uh, San Francisco Technology Center, um, and it, it was awesome. We we talked to some really cool people, but I'm looking at like our, our AV crews film equipment, like right. their, their cameras and stuff. It's like cameras do not look like they used to. No, they've changed like, quite a bit. Like when you picture, like I'm sure if you went into your phone and like typed in you know camera into your emoji search. <laughs> You know, you'd have like a still camera yeah. that looks like a you know an old school Kodak yep. or whatever, and then you know a movie camera like a shoulder that has mount. like that has like that that like jet funnel looking like <laughs> lens on the end of right. it, and then like the the two spools of film <laughs> on top of it. Sure. Cameras don't look like that no, anymore, man. No. 
It's like a black box with this square sensor in the right. middle that you have to cover up with a lens. And only after you put like a $2,500 lens on it <laughs> does it start to, oh, that might be a camera. Yes. Yeah. Except without a, instead of a flash, now you have a microphone, a little boom yep. on it. And yep. it's like, that, that's a film camera. It's changed quite a bit. Just gone straight to the sensor. And then, like, when you sent me that uh, that Linus Tech Tips video of them liquid cooling a red, oh. that red, I didn't even know that was a camera. That looks oh, like a yeah. black box. Yep. I don't know what that thing does, but that's, like, the hottest 4K camera it's, that everybody and their mother wants that likes AV. I don't know how they afford it. That red, that red camera is so expensive. And all like, the accessories are expensive, too. Yeah. I think bare bones. I, so I was asking the film crew while we were out there. Like, how much does one of those run, you know? And because my buddy, you know, films 4K from his drone every now and yep, then. Yep. And his gaming PC, which is not a cheap one, his gaming right. PC, like when he's doing 4K video editing, is like on the brink of overheating every time he's doing it. <laughs> and so, so like, that's got to be an expensive piece of kit. Yeah. And they're like, let's put it this way. A basic bare bones red camera with no attachments, no accessories, might not even come with an enclosure. Yep. It might just be like the mother. Apparently, they sell like the motherboard of a camera. Just a sensor. Just that is yeah. like 13K. Yeah. yeah. And then you start tacking things yeah. onto you it. Get to and 20K like, real quick. Yeah. A, a tw- <laughs> 20K is what you're looking to spend on just a functional camera. Yeah. Yeah. That's absurd, man. That's crazy. But, uh, we should spin off another podcast about AV equipment. I don't know enough. Get on B&H Photo. I'm sure they know. got a podcast. <laughs> then again, I don't know much about this stuff either. But let's go on. Let's talk about the test bed, The man. test bed. Yeah. Okay. So last week, I experimented with the collision detection. Okay. There's six settings on the collision detection. And I know my fi- my hand is holding up five <laughs> fingers right now, mostly because I don't have a sixth one. But you should work on that. That sixth one doesn't really matter because right. there's really only five collision detection settings. There's, you know, one through five sensitivities, sure. five being the most sensitive, one being the least sensitive, and zero being off. Uh, we don't need collision detection. It's in the fine print. You know, and, and, it's, and it is in the fine print because, I mean, the uh, the Cobot is still, by definition, without collision detection on, is still a collaborative robot because it does not exceed 15 newtons of force mm. at any time. Awesome. And at any joint. Right. So it does follow that fine print. Good. But... um. Yeah, so we were playing with it, and at first, you know, Tim came over. Um, Try to hit him with the robot. Oh yeah, yeah. He was like, he's like, now move it as fast as you can in, into my hand, and I do that. And um, I was adjusting the wrong setting right. at first. I was adjusting the uh, the teach sensitivity. Okay. And collision sensitivity was still at zero, <laughs> like t- turned off. And I'm like, it should feel different now. It should stop. And Tim is just like, you know, really just giving it to giving it. the robot the business. <laughs> And I'll let Tim do that. Sure. I mean, it came out of his budget. <laughs> so if he if he breaks it, it's gonna be on. If, if the robot breaks, it's gonna be on his account. Yes. You know. So so uh, um, he's like, I, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's stopping. And the, I hear the robot like squealing, <laughs> like, like the the servo drives are going crazy. It's like, oh. Um, I adjusted the wrong setting. <laughs> Let's try this. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I now can, you can feel now it. Now it's a lot weaker. Now it requires like no force to stop the robot. Okay. And now it will stop, but it requires a lot more. And then off, it's just like it's going to try to keep going. Yeah. yeah. And if it can't, if it decides it can't or it, it doesn't see its position change, change it, enough, right. then it throws a warning. Okay. Says something is wrong. <clears throat> and then it stops. Um, it doesn't think it's a collision because right. collision detection is not on. Right. But, um, 
so that was really cool. Um, and my initial thought with the collision detection was, why don't when we're using the robot, you know, it's an expensive piece of technology and humans are even more expensive than robots. We wouldn't want to hurt a human. Why don't we just keep collision uh, detection up at maximum sensitivity yeah, all the time? That makes sense. And then I realized like just doing something, just moving the arm really fast at max speed around and getting to some wild positions. I click and hold um, initial position go. Right. And it accelerates as fast as it can to its initial position, but it doesn't even make it like an inch and it totally halts and kind of like droops down. Oh, indicating that it thinks it hit something. OK, gotcha. and I check the uh, window on the, the computer, the uh, user interface, the HMI, um, and it says to me collision detect essentially right. collision detection uh, we detected a collision and i think oh let's clear it and try that again mm-hmm. and i move it again it accelerates really quick only moves about an inch or two right. and stops huh. the same thing happens again it's like maybe i need to turn down the collision detection sensitivity right and then that's when it hits me okay like collision like you would move the robot as fast as possible at maximum speed when you don't need to worry about anything breaking, right, when just, you're not around anything, when you don't need to be careful, um, like a rapid so position move, rapid on a position, CNC move. exactly. Yeah. You don't need to worry about collision, right. so don't even use collision detection in that case. Mm-hmm. But the second you're doing something careful, you want to move the robot as slowly as possible. Right. And if it does hit something, you want to know immediately. Uh, so that's when you crank up the collision detection. Gotcha. And that's that's when I realized, okay, that's why there's settings. And that's okay. why you don't want to have it as maximum sensitivity all the time. So I'm leaving its default setting as three, like right in the middle. Okay. It's, it's not going to interfere with any rapid movement. Right. But at the same time, it won't take too much force to stop the robot from doing something potentially harmful. Yeah. Like, if I'm moving it and I'm not looking, three is going to be a good setting. Yeah. And plus all the materials that we're using and interfacing to the pocket and see, there's reasonable yeah. give in the whole system that yeah. nothing will be damaged beyond catastrophe. Yeah. So, so the whole point I'm trying to get at and say much cleaner is the way that you would adjust the speed of the robot. Yep. You would adjust the collision sensitivity inversely proportional yeah. to the speed. So faster less faster robot less sensitivity awesome slower robot very high sensitivity and it sounds a little counterintuitive but the truth is you know when you're moving slow that's when you're being careful right right. and when you're being careful is when you want the collision detection to be as sensitive as possible yeah that's a good line so and and that was basically the long-winded there was only two (laughs) pictures in that block uh that that update yeah the testbed update but um it was really long-winded. I put a lot of text into that. That's good. Um, so that was the first thing. Yeah, what's coming up next then? That's next a good step, experiment. Oh, also, I just want to point out that you did label the axes. That I was did a good lesson learned from the pocket NC that yeah. there's a lot of joints on that on that arm. And when you're either manually manipulating or doing it from the, the uh, computer, it's good to know, one, which joint that you're referring to yeah. and which way it goes which oh, way. Oh, man. And I am actually so pleased that you brought that up that I met uh, that I labeled the week before that I labeled the axes. So I just mentioned earlier that I was in um, as a, the Autodesk Technology Center in San Francisco last week. Yep. Touring through, I've toured through their um, their uh, fact their lab. Sure. 
want to call it a lab. What is the, their the shop? shop? That's okay. what I'm looking for. I don't know why it's so hard for me to remember the word shop. A little foggy today. So foggy. Um, I've toured through their shop before. Yep. It's a great shop, but you know, I'll never pass up a tour. Even if I've seen it before, <laughs> even if it hasn't changed since the last time I've been there, I, wa- I love walking through there. They have such a fantastic facility. But anyway, I did happily notice on this last tour through there, all of their machines, somebody has gone through and labeled every <laughs> axis. Everything awesome. that moves, yeah. every joint, every axis, they're all labeled. All and labeled. I'm like, I am not the only one. <laughs> yes. This is how they do it. This is how innovators do it. All right, Steve. I figured that's how innovators do it. All right. When the podcast is big time, yeah. if it comes for, if a CNC comes from the factory labeled, then we did our job. Man. <laughs> I think that's a good metric. We'll see. I, it, it's a bit of a dream. It's a bit of a dream. But it's a, that's a, that'll be a good metric. I'm surprised how, how many are not. I guess there's options that'll, that'll well, fix Well, I mean, one of, one of the people at Autodesk did point out, Datron, Datron, they yeah. do that from the factory. Okay. They, they're cool. that way from they're the factory, factory. Cool. Which was cool. Um, so what's coming up next? Coming up next, Sharab and I um, are, well, Sharab, you know, I'm sure he's probably started working on putting an MT Connect adapter yep. and agent for making an agent for the, uh, the cobot, which is cool. But um, we are, he did talk to me today. He was like, hey, this week we should program the robot to do something. It shouldn't be hard. Right. It really shouldn't be hard. I think we can throw away a can, like an empty <laughs> soda pop can. Sure. Have the robot drop it into even without an end effector. Right. End of arm tooling. Just push it. Um, just just throw something into a trash bin with only like f- four to ten lines of code. It sure. shouldn't be hard at all. I'm like, sounds awesome. Let's do it. And he's Sharab. So we're gonna try to program a simple motion. Okay. For the robot this week. And we're going to do it and using two methods. Sharp is going to use command lines, just use lines of code sure. to program this. And I'm going to use the user interface, the okay. software that came with the robot. Cool. Um, just to see how the two work out. Yep. Um, to And also to, chest, to test the, um, the accuracy and the repeatability mm. of the two methods of programming. That would be cool. Um, so that you know, we're just getting onto the the extended motion, um, the the prolonged motion testing. Yep. But uh, this would be a cool test. And okay. It's comparing how traditional code to hot, fresh, new <laughs> software that's easy to use. Right. So that'll be a nice. Uh, I think that'll be a nice comparison. Awesome. I definitely want to see the write up on that. Sure. That's gonna be great. Uh, good. Look forward to that. And then uh, let's get in some uh, topics, uh, some articles to run into. So uh, All right. the first article I want to bring up was the Australian Army. They don't come up in the news too often. The Aussies, man. The Aussies. They're a lot of fun. So <clears throat> the article this is from uh, 3D Printing Industry. Uh, so the Australian um, military is looking to teach their uh, military force, their army, about a- uh, additive manufacturing. Looks It looks like wow. they have... They bought a machine, so they have a test where they're going to uh, train about 20 soldiers in uh, advanced additive manufacturing. So they have a company that they uh, highlight in the company. It's a or in the article. It's a one-year program. Uh, let me just read the quote here. What they want to do: This will reduce the requirement to deploy with bulky holdings of multiple repair parts, hence increasing mobility and survivability, and re- reducing time wasting for new parts to create greater resilience in the supply chain. In the end, uh, it's a 
theory that I've been testing is manufacturing and point of use. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of years ago when additive was on the big hype cycle, um, everyone like, you should, everyone should have a 3D printer in your garage. You can print anything that breaks in your house and then you can fix your car, you can fix your tractor. Right. Let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's figure out their ecosystem to support that first. So uh, the military is taking the lead on doing that. So what they're doing, uh, the U.S., I think the U.S. Navy is they're experimenting with putting um, additive machines on um, vessels, uh, seaworthy vessels, aircraft carrier, frigates, that type of stuff. Um, I don't know if the ground forces are putting anything in the forward operating bases yet. Yeah. But the idea is if something breaks, they can get a repair in that will either get them to a uh, base or they allow them to continue working uh, in the field. So that's an experiment that our military is doing. It looks like the Australian um, military is also interested in doing the same where they want to deploy additive machines uh, at the forward operating bases to keep their equipment running. So if a gear breaks on a Humvee or a Striker, yeah. they could replace it. Um, it does bring up the second uh, problem with the whole ecosystem of um, uh, manufacturing a point of use is where do you get the digital files from? Who owns the digital right. files? It's similar to the DRM rights for um, you know music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You've got a CAD data, or actually if you're servicing older equipment, like old Apache or Harrier or something like that, you don't have any CAD data. So the best case scenario is say it's a newer thing where you have CAD data. Where does that original CAD data from? Where's the single truth uh, that you're going to pull from? Who... Where is that stored? Yeah. Um, how does the company that made that design get royalties from being manufactured as opposed to them manufacturing it? Uh, so there's a lot of um, data issues and uh, commercial issues uh, with this. So I'm eager to see if they move forward with something like this. Um, it'd be it'd be a cool task. I think the first move for any military force would be let's look at the current equipment equipment that we have now right and especially the stuff that is about to be retired and find all of the blueprints find all like right. paper blueprints yep. digitize them yeah and yeah. then have a team not only like just scan paper blueprints right but then another team of like really good cad <laughs> operators um take those scanned documents yep. and then make digital twins yeah. or 3d yeah. models of them yeah and that that's something we uh, face back at Eaton is uh, converting old files. Mm-hmm. We do that a bunch of times. You take a print, you convert it to a CAD model. Yeah. Then you have to verify the CAD model is correct. So it's a whole check and balances yeah. type thing. But Well, that would be the first step. Yeah, but the dilemma we faced was, is the drawing correct? Is the drawing what is correct in the field? Because you do have in-service modifications, mm-hmm. you have production modifications. So going back to the single truth, doesn't really exist even for a piece of paper drawing. Wow. There's so okay. often there's uh, you have engineering cord- um, change orders. You got um, minor changes. You have major changes. Some changes aren't documented from the production floor. Some aren't documented from the customer. There's a big ecosystem of changes, but there there's already a lot of work being done on that. There, um, I think it's the University of Wichita has a um, really big department that's doing a lot in aerospace. Uh, and they're working actively with the military about um, modernizing, like, the F-18 fleet. Yeah. So when they get something in for repair, um, they pull the old drawings. They actually convert the old drawings into a CAD model. Or they can scan the existing ones. For example, when they're attaching bulkheads and spars, they actually rivet it in place. 
So if they want to see where the actual rivets are, they can scan the original one. That gets converted to the uh, new CAD geometry, and then off they go. So we'll see. It's uh, interesting times. We'll see if uh, the materials can keep up with the additive printers, if the machines are resilient enough to be in the field. Um, it gets into the second article that, uh, that I'm going to talk about, but uh, it'll probably be after yours. That is interesting, though. Like I was trying to, I was just trying to look up the the term for a an update to something sure. that doesn't go published. Like like companies make changes and updates yeah. all the time to right. a particular product yep. without going out and explicitly saying this is version two. Correct. Like right. Sony was very huge in doing that with the PlayStation Three. Yeah. There are so many different variations right. of the PlayStation Three. Yeah. All in that original fat PlayStation Three. You'll see that in the like, uh, version number. So you have a version yeah. number and a revision number. They're gotcha. slightly different things. So if we hear like uh software ten dot XXXX the small incremental numbers, mm-hmm. those are internal changes that they rolled out. Interesting. Once they roll out to a bigger number like from 10 to 11, usually then there's a formal announcement on the yeah. commercial side. On the engineering, you know, stuff that's more control, like medical, aerospace, yeah. even some automotive stuff, it's controlled similarly. Yeah. But it's... it's well, uh, then it, it sounds like I may be wrong in, like, the first step being digitize everything. It may just be, like, get a really good team who can <laughs> program a 3D printer. <laughs> the right. first step would then be uh, actually... Get the most durable 3D printer you can make. <laughs> like, you need something bulletproof. Because, yeah, of course, everybody wants to just, like, 3D print everything, yeah, all of your yeah. repairs. Right. But the problem is the most fragile part in the 3D printing process is the 3D printer <laughs> itself, man. They love yeah. breaking. And I'm wondering also, I mean, there's a lot of post-processing involved, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, yeah, you could buy one 3D printer, but that doesn't solve your manufacturing problem. Yeah. So we'll see how this evolves. Can you imagine being like halfway through a 72-hour print in the field (laughs) and then a mortar strike takes place, (laughs) shakes the hell out of the machine, and then all of your filament is off. Just done. These last few layers of the filament are totally misaligned. This could potentially be a huge mistake, Ben. Or an Abram (laughs) drives by and it shakes the floor. (laughs) Okay. Um so I wouldn't say it's a solution just yet. <laughs> All right. So my article was uh, I'm loving following uh, uh, metrologynews.com yeah. or metrology news today. I think it's metrologynews.com. They, they're just they've been coming in strong every day with at least one solid article yep. regarding, you know, chasing that almighty micron. Um, but uh, the, uh, the 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 article that I spot that I peeped today was um, assuring OEM machine tool precision, and it basically the 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 author followed this one Russian company that makes like fifteen percent of the machine tools that are sold and you in use in Russia nice. in all of like you know the Russian states. The Eastern Bloc, yeah, yeah, the Eastern Bloc. Um, they, they push out like you know they've made something like. 4,000 plus lathes nice. um, that are like super high precision. Right. And this, this whole article follows how do you determine whether something is super high precision? Mm. And, you know, ISO, they talk about ISO 9000, uh, the series of quality standards that say if, if, if you're selling the machine to be, have this level of accuracy or this level of precision, um, you need to determine you basically need to do scientific research to say 
this is how we determined that it was this accuracy. Yep. This is the method that we used, and this method can be used by anybody to determine that the machine is still this accurate. That's cool. So, and that that's the cool thing about ISO nine thousand. But um, you know, the article just talked about like you know how how does a manufacturer, uh, how does a machine tool builder, or just builder in general, gen in general of manufacturing technology. Um, determine how accurate and precise their machine is. Um, I, I found it really fascinating because it was it was meta. You know, right. we right. we talk often about how what a particular manufacturing technology can do, right. what something can make, yep. what kind of geometries it can work with, but we don't often focus on. Well, how does the manufacturer determine that it can actually do this? <laughs> right. How does it like how, keep its promise? How was it this? You know, and, and and this article tapped into that. It was a little bit over my head, uh, <laughs> and I will definitely go back to reread it. Yeah. But it was a really fascinating one, and I'll make sure to uh, put the link um, down below. Yeah, I'm definitely interested. I'll definitely take a look at the article, and I wonder who the uh, Russian manufacturer is. And- yeah, it was like some three-word name that was actually in English, but okay. they make a lot of machine tools out there. Yeah, that's interesting. That's good Good info. Um, the last article I want to talk about today is about a hypercar, our favorite, oh, favorite jams. So there's a new company, uh, fresh off the blocks. Uh, Zinger is the hypercar company. They have the Zinger 21. Uh, there's a C in the front. Yeah. Uh, Some other millionaire that thinks they can make a car, huh? <laughs> yeah, so they're making a new hypercar that's uh, got a price tag of $1.7 million. Uh, so I'll go over quickly the uh, car itself, and then I'll get into why I thought the, uh, this, this um, YouTube video is useful, actually. Um, <clears throat> the car is uh, like a 1,200-horsepower um, V8 turbocharged. They're saying 11,000 RPMs, which is ridiculous for a turbocharged vehicle. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a cool layout, so it's a, it's a two-seater. But they're in line with each other, not hor- not perpendicular to the car. So you sit behind each other, kind of like a motorcycle. Yeah. Okay, tandem. A tandem would be the correct word. Yes, thank you, Steve. Right. Um, so for the car itself, kind of cool. We'll see if they actually get get into it. Um, but they have their production line set up. They did some really really interesting things on the production side. So they talk about using a lot of additively grown parts. Um, interesting. They have a uh, the front bumper, uh, the um, the. Cr- uh, crash zone itself it's just a, uh, okay. a f- um it looks like a hammerhead shark in the front it's yeah. just a flat skin but the inside is a completely unique honeycomb design that's been additively awesome. printed so it's uh, a lattice a lattice exactly All right um they have a couple of um they uh the uh, the narrator walks us through a like strut or um like a steering knuckle type assembly or part right uh so he uh shows the first it was designed by human 3d and 3D printed, mm-hmm. but it looks like they incremented to a generative design. So they nice. changed. Uh, so they had uh, they talked about the different iterations. He had three iterations shown there, and the design time it took to achieve that. Uh, it's a little bit misleading because it did start from the human design part and then iterate over to the. Right. Well, it's probably more of a topographical um, optimization type. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, process, but uh, it was really cool to see that they had that going on. Also, it looks like they stole an idea from local motors where they have nodes and carbon fiber rods. Um, so they have these um, intersection points that are metallic, uh, 3D printed, that accept uh, carbon fiber rods or sleeves. Okay. So to connect like the like the rear B pillar, they've got a lower, um, uh, say, knuckle or um, intersection, 
and then it has a carbon fiber tube up to the top uh, uh, structure. So they use these uh, tubes all over the place. So it looks like a uh, almost like a um, like a, a, a race car with the uh, with the cage around it until they put the skid on top. But it's carbon fiber tubes with the metallic uh, intersection points. So local motors had an idea a bunch of years ago that they presented about uh, nodes and uh, uh, things like that for that their manufacturing technique. You know, to keep something as as custom as generative and additive can produce mm-hmm. while still keeping it modular. Right. You know, that's that's very interesting. Yep. So they have these tubes that they can just cut to length and then these uh, intersection points that are 3D printed. So there's some interesting points there. And then uh, they have a complete, almost, it looked like a complete automated assembly line. As in, they have one set of robots that put almost everything together within, I guess, the structure of it. Uh, so they talked about scaling up. You just duplicate the cell over and over yeah. again, which is one way to do it. But um, it, it was really interesting. So you know, from the video, it's uh, Top Gear produced this video, and I thought it was really sure. deep dive into the manufacturing side of this hypercar. That I'm, probably- look, I'm looking forward to watching it because I'm calling vaporware right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of vaporware right. in in the car tech. I mean, going all the way back to the to Vector, <laughs> back with their W8 oh, back no. in the day, man. With the <laughs> but uh, I mean, there's some stuff here, like like t- when you're talking about their use of additive. Yep, it's realistic. Yes, you know, yeah. using additive to make crumple zones, brilliant yep. idea. Su- yep. uh, suspension geometry, yep. absolutely brilliant. Um, and viable. Yeah, um, yeah. And the use of carbon fiber within the structure, I thought was really good. The, the motor sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah. 11,000 RPM out of a twin turbo V8. It makes sense because from what I remember reading, not in your notes, but in the article, I think it was like a 2.9 or maybe even 2.3 liter V8. A little guy. A very li- which is essentially two motorcycle engines right, right. mounted on the same crankshaft. But that's back- that makes sense for them it to rev that high. That's like an older Formula One engine, though. Yeah. When it's that small, but yeah. that And then you slap those. some blowers on it. Yeah. And you should be able to, man, I don't want to experience that lag. <laughs> but is this a hybrid? Uh, I don't know. Because if didn't it's get a hybrid, it. then you'd have perfect torque fill for a motor like you this. You could, yeah. Um, and it depends on how they gear the engine, too. I mean, you could do some anti-lag with some uh, premature detonation. <laughs> um, but uh, when you watch the video, I propose that what you see in the video is what people imagine the factory of the future looks like. Okay. There's so, a cool factory. I, th- I some, think it's a cool factory. Awesome B-roll. It's, it, it's clean. Which nice. is, I, I'm, yeah. a, I'm on the fence about that. But they have a separate area for additive manufacturing. They got an automated assembly area. They've, they're using some really, really cool materials. So they've got yeah. carbon fiber everywhere. Um, they've got some really, really neat parts. Um, of course, they had to show the machine shop, which has to exist because they got to process the part mm-hmm. somewhere. So the video does show just the highlights of it. But right. if you look at it on the surface for what they want to show, if someone said, what is the factory of the future of glory? That's an example. I'm sorry, man. I think the factory of the future does look clean. You're the only one. I'm the only one? Yeah. I don't think I'm the only one. Well, you're the only one that that, that doesn't... <sighs> All right, fine. You can you can think that. There is... I've been to too many factories to know that that will never exist. And a normal well, factory... I've been to Eaton. That, that was is your... not clean. It looked clean compared to some other things that I've seen. <laughs> Okay, going. Okay, maybe from, I should say organized, not necessarily. It's clean. organized. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, do we want to end with your? Uh, Yo, you're right. Because <laughs> I saw some startups this last week in San Francisco, <laughs> and it was like, 
There was a few clean ones, but yeah. they didn't do all their work there. Correct. Correct. And then I saw one place that was just like, have you, have you guys heard of OSHA? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I digress. That was a fun trip, man. Yeah. But I, I need some sleep. It's been all gas, no breaks all week. It was a hard week for you. Plus, you're sick oh last my week, God, too. Sick. I need a weekend. I'll tell you what. Driving to the left coast is not pleasant for me. Left coast? No, it's a long flight. I wouldn't want to drive. Like I wouldn't want to drive over there. I don't like flying over there. <laughs> it's miserable. Like just get yourself like load up on Benadryl and water and maybe some cold <laughs> medicine, and the flight might be enjoyable. Did you take the red eye back? I did take a red eye back, both to and from. Yeah, the oh. seats in front of me. Or no, 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 not not not, not red eye to and from. Yeah, just back, but the red eye coming back. But both flights to and from. Um, the, the the airplane was not equipped with entertainment oh. screens. I was oh, like, "What is no. this? Like, what is wrong with you?" Yeah, they're just they're just yeah. It's a money. You got an old old uh, airplane. Yeah, I didn't think it was that old, but whatever, man. All yeah, right, I, how do fun. we uh, how do we follow up with the with this info, Steve? Well, if you want to see what Ben's up to, go to his LinkedIn. And do you have a Twitter as well? No, no, you no. You just no. have a LinkedIn. Just for God's okay, sakes. just go to his LinkedIn. You'll see it in the description below. If you want to follow me and what I'm doing on the test bed, go to swarfysteve.blogspot.com. If that's too much for you, it's also in the link below. We're also published on mt360conference.com/blog. You get the transcript and the audio file link back to uh, SoundCloud. If you right, like man. what you're hearing, awesome. Give us a like if that's even a thing on uh, whatever you're listening on. If you don't like it, write your complaint on the back of a $100 <laughs> bill and send it to 7901 West Park Drive. West Park. <laughs> You'll find a big hole of dirt in the ground. Bye, everybody. Bye.